Welcome to HealthCast for the week of May 11th, 2015. I'm your host, Bill Balderas. We're joined this week by author Emily F. Peters, who is the founder of Uncommon Bold, a San Francisco-based brand strategy studio. You can find Emily online on Twitter, at Emily F. Peters. Emily, thanks for joining us this week. Thanks for having me. Now, I understand, in addition to your work as an author, uh, running an agency, You've also been in the trenches of healthcare. You've done a lot of hands-on work. Can you give us a little bit of background about your experience in the healthcare and medical world? Yeah, sure. So my first entry into to health technology was a complete shock to me. I had applied for a small startup. I found Craigslist of all places. Um, there was only seven people when I joined, and that company turned out to be practice fusion. Um, so that was my first entry into electronic health records. Digital Health, HHS, ACO, the whole world of acronyms, and the insanity that has now become the digital health sector for me. I did four years of practice fusion, and then I just uh, finished up a year working at the company as well. It's, it's pretty exciting when a company like Practice Fusion recruited their first uh, handful of employees off Craigslist. That's mm-hmm. one of those Silicon Valley great startup stories. Yeah, it was a pretty insane. I had no idea what I was getting into. <laughs> <laughs> now, Emily, I know since then you've really defined your niche as someone who digs deep into how social media is impacting medicine, impacting healthcare. You keep your eyes open for some innovation in this space. So it's it's, it's 2015, social media has been around nine or 10 years now. But what are you seeing happening? What are some of the top trends that you're seeing on the healthcare side? Well, I think, you know, you have it exactly right. Social media has been with us in nine or 10 years now. Uh, the way that technology tends to get picked up in healthcare, that means it's just coming on the scene. So it's pretty exciting to start to see groups like, you know, the Mayo Clinic Center for Social Media coming on, trying to educate hospitals, uh, healthcare players, everybody trying to get in the space. So we're just really at the advent of people doing interesting things from an organizational perspective in social media and healthcare. One of the trends that I really love the most is hospitals are starting to live broadcast surgeries as a big PR spectacle, but also just going to get people really interested in what the hospital does, how they're unique in the world. UCLA has done this. They live broadcast a brain surgery where they actually had the patient be awake in the middle and he was on fine performing a country music song. So it's just a really unusual and interesting way to kind of get a behind-the-scenes look at what's happening in a hospital today. That's amazing. And, and, and I know there's the really innovative stuff. There's the, the things like that, the, the live surgeries. It also seems like there's this general feeling with some of the, maybe some of the systems and, and groups that aren't as progressive, this idea they just don't want to be left out. They pick up the newspaper, they see what their competitors are doing, they see what's going on in healthcare. Do you still feel a lot of professionals in healthcare are still around that, hey, just don't leave me out of what's going on? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of hospitals kind of have this mandate, like, oh, we need to have a Twitter account and a Pinterest and an Instagram and a Vine and Snapchat, but then they haven't really thought necessarily what they're going to say and what's going to be interesting. So you do tend to see what I call a lot of the green tea tweets, you know, <laughs> people posting like, hey, you should drink green tea because it's really good for you. And it's like, okay, well, that would be interesting maybe if you're coming from a tea company, but coming from a hospital, you know, where they attach people's limbs, like that's probably not maybe the most interesting thing you could possibly say on social media. So I'm always excited to see people who are taking it a, a step further, who are doing something that's a little bit more unique to their own facility or their own expertise. 
take it a step further, doing something different. I saw in one of the articles you wrote about World Vasectomy Day. That, that, that seems like that's taking a little bit further. Can you tell us a little bit about that program, what, what you saw, what happened there? World Vasectomy Day is a great example. It's a couple urologists who were just frustrated that there was all this stigma and fear and uncertainty around people getting vasectomies, and they just created kind of an international movement. They have this one day where they live broadcast vasectomies, and they get 10,000 viewers to tune in to watch these things, and they have the patients who come in, I think this last year they did 25 vasectomies live um, all around the world. You know, the patients get, um, you know, a free vasectomy. They get to spread the awareness. They do interviews with doctors around the world via Skype. They get a lot of media attention to this. Obviously, you know, there's a bit of a rubbernecking factor to it, right? People are fascinated to see what's really going to happen. But in terms of destigmatizing the SNP, um, it's an incredibly effective tool. And what would you say to a healthcare professional? I'm a communications director at a large healthcare system. I hear that story and I think there is no way our CEO is ever going to go for that. There is no way our, our chief clinical officers are ever going to be supportive of that. Our compliance people yeah. will be worried about us getting sued and our, our branding people are going to say our brand is not around live social media coverage of vasectomies. What do you do when you run into that resistance? Yeah, well, I mean, I think you have to, obviously, you have to make sure that you're covered in terms of HIPAA. You have to get permissions from everybody. You can't just start randomly filming surgeries happening <laughs> in your hospital. But I, I think that people who are hesitant to share their stories through social media are really missing a huge opportunity. I mean, if you think of George Clooney got his start on a soap opera that was not about, you know, an auto mechanics office or an orthodontist office. It was about a hospital, and it was about the drama and the human stories and the ups and downs that happen in that facility. And, you know, there's just so much interest in what's happening inside of a hospital. There's so much opportunity for this really amazing stories to come out of it. So I think, you know, find one thing that is potentially, you know, your hospital's one advantage. For a while, we saw a lot of hospitals that were doing the first uh, cochlear implant doing videos around, you know, the patient hearing some music for the first time or hearing their child's voice for the first time. Like, if your hospital is doing something that's really innovative and cutting edge, or is it just really going to speak to your community of patients, don't be afraid to tell that story. You know, find a way to, to make it work for you on social media. That's great. And that's a way to say out of the, the green tea syndrome. Or what, what are some other ways if I'm looking to put together, you're, you're an author. So if I'm looking to develop an editorial calendar, and again, I'm used to thinking like a marketer, what can I do differently in my behavior to avoid talking about green tea and spend more time talking about the specialties within my hospital? It's easy to fall into that trap of the editorial calendar of, oh, it's American Heart Month, it's Diabetes Prevention Month, like I think right now we're Mental Health Awareness Month. If you have something really interesting to say, it doesn't really matter necessarily to try to tie it to the month, right? I think if you have a good story and it's going to catch people's attention, just run with it. Don't hold it. You know, don't try to make it fit into a certain calendar. So my advice always to hospitals is what is it that's really unique to you? What can you do that no one else does? And that be something of just how you see your patients is unique or maybe you have a certain uh, specialty that you really advance care or maybe you're really advanced in medical education and residency training. So find that one thing that's really unique to you 
and fill out your own editorial calendar around that. If it's the medical education part and so residency, you know, make match day a really big priority on your social media calendar. That's that's fascinating. Even for somebody who doesn't work in medicine, but that moment of the medicine ripping open those envelopes and getting placed in their residencies and that's, that's a heartfelt, interesting moment for people to watch. And I think you'll be surprised at how much attention and support you can get from their community through this kind of campaign. And that's great for physicians, for the for the candidates, for the hospitals. You and I have had some really interesting conversations around the patient side of all this. And I understand there are tools online where patients are crowdsourcing or crowdfunding medical procedures. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What are the kind of patients that are using these services? So we see a lot of people turning to social media when they're frustrated, which unfortunately in the U.S. healthcare system, there's a lot of frustrated patients. So one great website that I, I think is really interesting work is called CrowdMen. What they do is patients who have run out of kind of options through just having conversations with their doctors who feel like they don't have the solution that they're looking for yet. What they do is they sign up and they actually um, pay a small fee to have people crowdsource their diagnoses. So it's medical students and healthcare professionals usually across 23 countries. They work on these really tough medical cases. It's great practice for the doctors and the medical students to just kind of see something that's really rare. And, you know, in some cases, it's helped patients in a couple of weeks to find the answer to something that they haven't been able to get. You know, a, a cure or at least a treatment plan patients for 20 years, they haven't had answers. That's a really cool uh, startup. We also see people doing that directly through you know, raising money for uh, treatment and for research. There was a girl named Eliza who was diagnosed with a rare pediatric disease, and her parents created a video. They've actually raised about $2 million and are working with Nationwide Children's Hospital in Ohio to speed up clinical trials for a potential cure for her. We've seen that with ALS, ALS the Ice Bucket Challenge. We've seen it, you know, Mayo Clinic does some really cool stuff as well with fundraising and awareness. I think that the internet has really shown that if you have a compelling story, that there are people out there who will team up and make sure that, you know, you get the resources that you need to help and make sure. You mentioned the Ice Bucket Challenge, and I've seen this debated countless times, the sheer viral nature, the amount of money raised, did it have staying power? Was it meant to have staying power? Was it great that it raised awareness at the time? When you look at a campaign like that, something that is really just that that rocket ship, first of all, what are some of the components that makes a campaign like that one that everyone has heard of? You've talked about a lot of interesting things already, but most of our listeners hearing them from you is probably the first time they've heard of it. Why did the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge go so well in terms of exposure and overall how do you rate the success of a program like that so you know ALS I like a challenge like nothing we've ever seen before when it comes to social media and healthcare just really a phenomenon and I think there's a couple components that you know go into its virality obviously to start you know it's a great cause it's a, a horrible disease that deserves to have a lot of money raised for its research that being said, I think they were very smart and potentially lucky in the way that they put together the campaign. It really tapped into a little bit of our social media ego as a nation, right? The, the selfie culture. The idea of, you know, here's something that you can do that 
is going to make you look altruistic. It's going to also, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily look bad when they're, um, you know, covered in ice water. So, <laughs> you know, kind of is something fun that you can do that gets to show off. You know, they did really well with getting a lot of celebrities involved in it. The way that they had a little bit of a network effect built in where you had to call somebody else out and challenge them to do it as well. It's almost like a chain letter. It's just a really, really successful campaign, and it'll be interesting to see what the next big one is. People are trying to do um, it with a lot of different other uh, campaigns. There was one using soapy water around Ebola awareness that didn't, you know, it got a little bit of attention, but it didn't quite become a phenomenon as the ALS like a challenge. I think it's kind of that that magic sauce of just the right story, the right campaign, the right audience. Certainly. Great. Now, and a lot of people were not familiar with ALS before the campaign. It drove a lot of awareness. It drove a lot of attention. But then there are things like AIDS. Everyone knows about AIDS. We have a general awareness about AIDS. You've shared some examples where I believe it was UCLA was doing some pretty interesting things around public health, AIDS specifically. Can you talk to us about the role of social media in raising awareness and education around some of these public health issues? Yeah, well, so we were just talking about sort of the selfie culture, right? The ego that drives um, some of our social media behavior in this country. And part of that is also peer pressure, right? So it's peer pressure for something like ALS. I took a challenge to, to make a donation to do, you know, to participate in that meme. At UCLA, what they did is actually um, harness that peer pressure to create communities um, to promote HIV testing in high risk populations. And they've now done that both here in the U.S. as well as abroad. Um, they're starting to expand the study into substance abuse, into depression and bullying. What they do is they create these communities and they find people who are kind of advocates in that community who can just put a lot of pressure on these other people. Like, did you get tested? Did you get tested? What are you doing about your health? Like, are you going to your substance abuse meetings? You know, and what they found is that it's incredibly effective. It doesn't become noise. It becomes really personal, an intimate community of people who are supporting each other who have shared health needs. Great. And the, the area I get most excited about, that I love to see, is the predictive analytics, the things you can predict based on search patterns and social media tweets. And I've seen these fabulous stories about hospitals that are predicting emergency wait room times, for example, or flu outbreaks. And I know you shared examples of things like, can cardiac disease, can you predict a heart attack based on the level of anger in someone's tweet? Is that is there any validity to that? Yeah, so at the University of Pennsylvania, they actually found that angry tweets were a better prediction of fatal cardiac disease than the traditional demographic model, so socioeconomic and risk factors like diabetes and smoking and hypertension and obesity. So if you have somebody in your life who is a very angry tweeter, you might want to make sure that they're going to a cardiologist to claim you this research. Uh, and we're starting to see, you know, especially Twitter, because they have an open data API and they make it really easy, tons of um, medical research and academic research coming out around health trends you can predict. You know, there was the Google flu uh, tracker, there's Ebola awareness, there's uh, some really, really interesting stuff coming out of using Twitter data to get real-time 
analytics about what's happening, how people are feeling, how they're thinking about disease all across the world. Do patients or consumers have any privacy concerns? Are they concerned about their tweets being listened to? Yeah, I mean, Twitter is definitely not HIPAA compliant. <laughs> sure. Which is why you know, it makes a lot of uh, hospital administrators a little bit nervous. I think what you start to see is this trend of um, if your data can be used in a way that's either going to help other people or that's going to um, you know, bring some better understanding of something to the world, you know, that you're starting to see people, patients, the privacy concerns are really not there in that kind of situation. You know, patients are concerned about payers getting access to their information and adjusting their rates or having something sensitive released. But when it comes to do I have the flu or not or what kind of reaction I might have to this medication, um, you know, you see groups like patients like me and iodine coming out with just really interesting data that people, patients, are, are happy to provide. And it's sort of a different framework I'm so glad you brought up patients like me. So I saw recently 94% of all Americans on social media said they're willing to share data with other patients if they can help other patients. And one of the challenges I understand in healthcare around clinical trials, they have this bad name, this idea that takes so much money and time. But a lot of the time, a lot of the effort, a lot of the reason clinical trials are delayed, as I understand it, is because pharmaceutical companies or hospitals are having trouble recruiting just the right people for trials. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah. so is there, what's the role in social media for expediting the clinical trial process? Social media has become a really incredible platform in early testing for clinical trial recruitment. You know, we talked about patients like Eliza that, uh, you know, her family was able to raise $2 million on using social media and using YouTube. What they also can do is they've been able to get in touch with other patients who have similar conditions to Eliza who can be participating in the same clinical trials as she is. So, you know, clinical trials, like you said, you know, massively time consuming to recruit for these things. Traditionally, you know, very, very difficult. Um, a hospital might be looking just within their state or their county for patients for a rare disease, and they might only have you know, one or two people who are actually available there. What we started to see with social media and, and platforms like patients like me, and even through places like Facebook, the massive amount of clinical trial recruitment for rare disease coming through those platforms, can, you can just find each other more easily now. It's, it's just a much more connected world. That's interesting. You talk about the connectivity and how patients find each other. I know another area that's important aside from clinical trials is in the area of organ donation. There you have people that want to donate organs. You have a lot of people who are in need of organs, uh, but the connectivity issue is still a problem. I understand Facebook has a real success story in this area. Yeah, so Facebook basically blew up social media <laughs> when, I think it was just a, a, maybe over a year or two years ago, they um, added a single organ donation question to the timeline. And they did a little bit of press around it, not much, but it just took off incredibly. You know, I think they said you know, over 50,000 people announced their intention to be a donor. Um, in that day, you know, they had 13,000 people officially register. So John Hopkins jumped in and did some research about the impact of that. Um, and obviously, a tiny example of the power of a social network, you know, being able to tap into something that is health-related and also, you know, a little bit of that, um, you know, social kind of ego, peer pressure, um, concoction that we've been talking about in a lot of these campaigns just could not be a better 
place to apply that, you know, with there's 100,000 people currently on urban donation waitlist in this country. Um, and hopefully, you know, it's still early days, but we'll start to see the impact of those people signing up to be urban donors, um, you know, hopefully soon. Great story of the impact that you can make with a, a platform like Facebook where so many people are connected and active. You shared another story with me, I believe it was in Holland, where on Facebook there was a group to raise awareness around Alzheimer's that, that made it a little more real. Can you share that story with our listeners? So, I mean, a lot of these campaigns we've been talking about today are making use of social media in an interesting way. You know, they're sort of replacing a lot of time and effort that you could do to make that kind of campaign happen in the past. Uh, I think what I love about this Holland example with Alzheimer's is it's something that you really could only do on Facebook. It's really intrinsic to the structure of a social network. So what they did was they actually took pictures of people and they photoshopped them into events that they did not attend. Wow. So for example, you know, if there's that big you know, Coachella, right? They would photoshop you into a picture of people at Coachella and they actually tagged you in the photo. And for the people who were obviously super confused, like, I wasn't at Coachella, I don't understand why this is on here. They had an amazing messaging campaign about, you know, you're confused, right? You're now experiencing what it's like to have Alzheimer's. Wow. And they allowed people to, you know, after they were tagged, to submit more people to be photoshopped in and tagged. They made amazing videos to go with it. And just, I think, an incredible use of something that, you know, it's so social media specific. It really just tells the story that they're, they're trying to spread that awareness. Absolutely fascinating, powerful, powerful message. So we've talked about patients and the impact on patients. We've talked about hospitals and healthcare systems. If I'm a physician and suddenly my world's changing around me, my, my patients are interacting, they're practicing do-it-yourself health, they're, they're sharing information, the hospital I work for is using social media to predict t- trends, my, my surgeries are being covered live in social media. It feels like my world is, is changing. Is there a way that I as a physician can interact with other physicians? What are the restrictions? What's involved for me to adapt to this, this brave new world of social media? Yeah. So a lot of doctors, you know, they're a bit hesitant to get into social media for a couple of different reasons. And that's it's perfectly fair. You know, one is that it's a concern of, you know, accidentally posting something, uh, even as an access is a photo of your office, there might be some pictures of babies on the wall, that's a hip of violation. Uh, you know, your hospital administrator is going to kind of get upset at you. Um, and then also just time considerations. You know, doctors are incredibly busy and time sensitive. But what's interesting is doctors, there's kind of an emerging trend now of social media networks that are designed exclusively for physicians. You know, Thermo was one of the first. Now, you know, we have proximity, which is kind of a LinkedIn. For doctors, we have figure one, which is almost like an Instagram for doctors. What we found in that is that the physicians really do love to have that connection. It's an incredibly close working relationship that doctors have with each other in the clinical setting. Um, they just need to have it in kind of their own HIPAA-compliant, private, password-protected, uh, credential-verified network. Um, and then once that is in place, um, you do start to see doctors starting to experiment a little bit more with Twitter, developing a little bit more comfort with how they use social media professionally. Great. So we've talked about physicians, patients, healthcare systems. All the things you've talked about today, none of them existed six months ago, a year ago, 18 months ago. All new trends, all rapidly changing, all in an area of life that impacts all of us. Healthcare is the one thing we all we all consume. What's next? If you have a crystal ball, you have your magic eight ball, you look into it, Emily, what would you say 
are some of the things all of us, whether we are patients, whether we are physicians, whether we are administrators or executives in the healthcare field, what should we be looking out for over the next six months? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest trends that are coming out right now are um, a lot of the, the live broadcasting of videos. You see platforms like Periscope, uh, you know, Vine, which has been around for a little bit, but still growing quite quickly. Uh, even Snapchat now is getting some commercial use. So it's fun to see healthcare platforms and, and hospitals and doctors starting to experiment with how they can use those systems. The exciting thing I think about social media is that it changes so fast and there's so much opportunity. And it's hard to predict exactly what it's going to look like a year from now. Uh, I think it's pretty exciting. And if any of our listeners want to reach out to you to learn about your predictions, what's the best way to contact you or learn more about what you do? Yeah, great. They can go find me on Twitter at Emily S. Peters or go to my website at uncommonbold.com. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We had author Emily F. Peters, the founder of Uncommon Bold, with us today. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And until next time, for all of our listeners, this is Bill Balderas with HealthCast. Remember, don't just live, live well.